0: today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young.
1: This life has come alive for God and for Christ. There's a fresh, new, breezes blowing that are cleansing and life-giving. So, that's where we begin. My life, your life, Lord, I repent. Let me start right now as a teenager, a boy, a girl, parrot and say, you know, I'd love to do it again. I'd love to do it again in many areas, but let's start right now being God-fearing folks.
0: The truth is you can use your success and freedom to honor God. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today on The Winning Walk, Dr. Young begins his message, The Free Enterprise System, A Biblical Perspective, and brings you proven truth in how you can apply God's principles to pursue real success and bring blessing to others. So stick around. The Winning Walk is coming right up. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, The Free Enterprise System, A Biblical Perspective.
1: I'm going to pray a prayer. and It's a prayer for all of us. Will you repeat after me this prayer to our Heavenly Father? Dear God, God. thank you for so many blessings. blessings. We're here today today. for you to do do business in my life. So many areas we need to have forgiven. Remind us, O Lord, Lord, that repentance is necessary necessary. before forgiveness takes place. place. Lord, touch us. us. Bring us alive. alive. Give us a new joy in living. living. We We praise you. We thank you. AND WE LISTEN EXPECTANTLY expectantly. FOR YOUR TRUTH truth. TO EXPLODE IN OUR LIVES. lives. MAY WE LEAVE THIS PLACE OF GATHERING BRAND-NEW, EXCITED Excited. ABOUT LIVING living. THE LIFE OF JESUS. Through us, in his name we pray. pray. Amen. Amen. In the sixteenth century, when explorers from Europe began to travel the world. They went from continent to continent, covering the whole globe. The one thing that they noticed, wherever they went, one thing stuck out. It was the fact that their life in Europe was so far advanced technologically. Culturally, from the rest of the world. Did you get that? In the 16th century, these explorers went around the world and country after country, they discovered that the life they lived in every area was far, far superior to the life of any other people on the globe. What explains that? The free enterprise system, capitalism, developed uniquely for many years only in Western Europe. And as these explorers saw the Inca civilization, saw the Mayans and all the others as advanced as they were, as they went to Africa and India and China, And they saw there's a tremendous gap in technology, and lifestyle, and it seems that only in Europe was that this opening of light and progress, and those early explorers were amazed because an area of development of steel, shipping, agriculture, the Europeans were miles Hundreds of years ahead of everybody else. How did this take place? Some historians say it was the Protestant Reformation. I don't think it's, that's true. I think it started far before that. I think the whole area of amazing progress in Europe began with the fall of the Roman Empire. If you remember anything about history, we were taught, I was taught as a history major, that following the fall of the Roman Empire in 385 A.D., that all of Europe went into, and most of the world, what was called the Dark Ages, remember? Even Edmund Gibbon, who was a historian, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, he said that all the barbarians took over when Rome fell. And we see so many fell victim to that, to that belief that now there were no coliseums being built, there were no monuments being built, the Roman road had been built, and it was the era of the Romans that the world grew and progressed with all the the modern structures and all the form of government. And the very opposite was true, ladies and gentlemen. Because it was the Roman Empire that kept the common people oppressed, and all the common people were taxed exorbitantly, exorbitantly, in order to do what? In order to build all these coliseums, in order to maintain a Roman army that could keep all the hoi polloi, the lower in their place, in their position, where the elitist could have Everything and they would have the monuments and they would have the best of food and therefore everybody else was taxed But when Rome fell There was an explosion of freedom For 1500 years and the idea that the middle ages or the dark ages were ages of depression and confusion and ignorance is absolutely using a fancy word hogwash The Middle Ages was a time of tremendous development. Now the people were set free, and there came into vogue something called reason and logic. And all the other religions of the world, by the way, they lived in the past. They reverenced the past. Only Christianity adopted reason and logic and looked to the future. Only Christianity said, we are based on truth, and therefore you find the great innovators, the great explorers, the great scientists, during that 1,500 years we call the Middle Ages, almost without exception. They were all serious, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, because Christianity. We're about truth. We're about logic. We're about absolute history. The other religions were repressive. And they pushed it away, and therefore, it was in Europe, where now Rome was gone, taxation was gone. Now the people had freedom, and now the people had independence, now people could use their own ingenuity, and it was from those monasteries, those Christian centers. Out of that, we have banking system. Out of that, we have beginning of bartering. Out of that, we had the beginning of production and buying and selling, and out of those monasteries, grew city-states, and suddenly you would go there, it would be like a shopping center of different trades and crafts, and all of a sudden now they invented a way not to go by flat ships, which had to stay close to the shore. There was invented during this period the rounding ship that had sails, and all of a sudden they weren't drawn with commerce with those ox-drawn carts. Now they had teams of horses. And so we see so many devices. In that period, that's where he got eyeglasses. For a long time, people could work and then they couldn't see, but eyeglasses were invented. Then, this period, musical notation was invented. All of a sudden, music began to thrive and grow. Artists were found. Now they could express themselves in art. You had a whole cultural, intellectual revolution, and plus all the agriculture. You have the three-field system came into being, and suddenly there was more food and more production. There was more freedom, and there we had the beginning moorings of what we call the free enterprise system. There has to be freedom. There has to be the right of the individual, and there's no exclusive people because you were born in this family. Therefore, everybody else had to bow down to you. That was eliminated at the same time. Because of the thrust of the teaching of the Bible, slavery was virtually eliminated in Europe by the 7th century. So you see the idea about, oh, the Dark Ages. No, the Dark Ages were when the people were oppressed, and when that oppression was lifted by the defeat of the Romans, therefore, you had Europe developing in a way and a path that no one had seen before in the history of humanity, the free enterprise system. You produce something, people will give you that which you think that thing you produced is worth. It is when wealth or money begets wealth and begets money. And it's the genius of not only Europe, we see now in America and Canada and other places. We know in history when the Englishmen came over on the Mayflower and et cetera, they established New England. They came here primarily for God, so they could worship freely. We know in South America it was different. The Spanish went down and they conquered South America. It became the New Spain and they went primarily there for gold. New England, God. South America, gold. We see a different culture. We see the free enterprise system developing here in America. Therefore. We see what happened in the rest of the world can be explained in a little story of, from China in 1008. In northern China, there developed a group of people who started using iron ore and smeltering it and producing iron products which helped in their agriculture. There you see a little smithering of the free enterprise system and suddenly, Common people were hired, wages were given, and there was an explosion of. The whole area of living and eating and, and relating to what began to explode, and all of a sudden, in northern China, you have a, a wonderful building through iron ore. At one time, there, over there 100,000 tons of iron were produced in one year. That's amazing at that time, and there was affluence coming, and common people were being, being paid higher and higher wages, and they found the canals there. They'd ship all the iron ore and their products out. Amazing thing, but oh, wait a minute. The bureaucracy in Beijing heard about it. And the mandarins came out, and they said Confucius would not be pleased with this. So they went and nationalized that whole part, and in a handful of years, all the prosperity there that came from capitalism was totally obliterated. This happened virtually all around the world, all around the world by oppression. And therefore, that's the reason exclusively in this period of time, that 1,500 years, you have the develop of the free enterprise system, which levels the playing field. that gives everyone a chance. And it's a wonderful system of economics. It's the reason America today is a successful nation, the most successful nation on the face of this earth in any way you measure an economy. But I asked the question, If capitalism has been so successful in America, and unquestionably it is, how in the world that we're hearing so much today about socialism? We hear on every turn. What is socialism? Socialism is simply another form of communism. Communism is socialism with a gun. Socialism comes from das Kapital." Karl Marx, he says, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And the idea is beautiful in the sense that we all produce and we all equally share in the products that we produce. There's only one problem with that. It has never been successful in all of history, and it's been tried time and time and time again. Pure socialism ends up in a few people having it all and everybody else fighting over the crumbs that are left. But wait a minute, what is the position of those who advocate socialism? The millennials, age 25 through 39. There's 73 million of those in that age category in the United States. And according to the Heritage Foundation, 44% of them would rather have socialism than capitalism. Now, 33% of those could not tell anybody what socialism is, but that's beside the point. (laughs) What is the appeal of socialism to 73 million Americans? Let me tell you what it is. 1% of the population of America owns 40% of the wealth and money in America. Hello, 1% owns 40%. What is wrong with that picture? And the gap between the haves and the have not is growing larger and larger and larger every single year for a number of years. What's happened to capitalism that's made us great? What is going on? I've said it many, many times, and it is historically and absolutely true. You can't live in a city or a country where there's a whole bunch of haves, and that's most of us here, and a whole bunch of have-nots. You can't exist like that. Life doesn't work like that. That is not capitalism. That is not what we're about. And a part of the problem we have here, and these millennials see it because a lot of them are underemployed. They're paid a minimum wage or a little more, and they see no way to advance. And they see all this inequity there. And we see the major corporations. There's 61 of them last year. Major corporations did not pay a, a penny of taxes. And so many of them pay just a little bit of taxes. Well, how does that work? Tell you how it works. 2018, Amazon paid zero in taxes for a record profit of $11 billion. That's the second year in a row of that e-commerce giant. Amazon is joining a list of other big companies, I'll name a few, naming big profits and paying no taxes, They're joining Delta Airlines, Chevron, Netflix, and General Motors, and the list goes on and on, no taxes. How does that work? These big corporations, they have CPAs and lawyers who work and get special little riders in Congress, so they will not have to pay taxes for this they're doing and that they're doing. And therefore, they give to these politicians' campaign, and naturally, they vote to help them in the whole process. Hello! Now, I'm not a socialist. I'm against socialism, but I can tell you, we who are capitalists and live in the capitalistic world, something needs to change, and we need to recognize and create a whole new environment that's based on Christian ethics. Let me tell you something. Russia is trying to become a capitalistic nation. China is becoming picking up free enterprise. The question remains, can you have capitalism without Christianity, or does capitalism still flow, 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 and is not somehow equal? When a company succeeds, if you and I are part of that company, all the success of the country ought to be bled down. We had last year one oil company made an amazing amount of money And thank God for the CEO and the primary stockholder. He gave every member, those who park cars and those who live in the upper office, $100,000 bonus, every member of his company because of the profits that they had. That is true Christian capitalism, ladies and gentlemen. Capitalism. It's wonderful if it's operated and people who are part of it have something of the Judeo-Christian ethics. If not, it becomes another way to exploit you and exploit me and exploit the common people. Now, capitalism also has echoes that you find in the New Testament. Jesus talked about salary. He talks about property rights. And by the way, a part of capitalism is having property rights, a part of capitalism is that we can determine our destiny, a part of capitalism is we have equal opportunity. And we see this all the way through the New Testament, little foregleams of it here and there. And also in the Old Testament, we have a whole lot of capitalism, and I want to introduce you to one Old Testament personality today. There was an absolute capitalist. He was for the free enterprise system. His name was Lot, L-O-T. We read through the Bible together. By the way, on the 20th week of our Bible study together, if you've been counting, I'm about, I think about four days behind, but I'm going to catch up this afternoon. <laughs> confession. But <laughs> well, we read about Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. His father had died. Abraham had taken him under his wing. Abraham was the friend of God, you remember. And you read over and over in the Bible everywhere Abraham when it says, and Lot went along, and Lot went along. Over and over, Lot went along, Lot went along, Lot went along, you read it over and over again. And somehow that when they went down to Egypt, you know, Abraham came out of Ur of Chaldees. God said, I'm gonna make out of you a special people who love me and live the way I want mankind to live. Abraham was the beginning prophet there. And then we see Lot tagged along. When they got back from Egypt and they're wandering around, we see that Abraham went to Bethel and built an altar. Lot went to Canaan and pitched his tent. And you see a pattern all the way through there. Wherever you read about Abraham, the first thing he did was build an altar to worship. The second thing he did was pitch his tent, take care of his sheep and his household. He would build an altar and pitch his tent. With Lot, Lot you read about it the the opposite. He would always pitch his tent, take care of his household and all of his property. Then he would say, Oh, well, I'd better build an altar. Building an altar to worship God was an afterthought of Lot. To Abraham, it was the primary place that he oriented his life. See the difference? And now, Lot and Abraham, their herdsmen, got the dispute over the brazing land for their cattle and their goats and their sheep. Abraham said, Time out. We got plenty of property here. Lot, you take whatever you want. You want all the land on the left for you and for your sheep and your herds? You take it. If you want all the stuff on your right, you take that. And so, Lot said, You know, Abraham's so generous, give me first choice. And so, Lot looked up there and saw those bleak mountains, barren, no, no water, a lot of rocks, 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 rocks. Then he looked the other way, he looked down in the Jordan Valley. My goodness, there's that rift that goes between two continents, and there's the beautiful flowing waters, and there's those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, there's, there's San Francisco, and there's Las Vegas right down there, <laughs> and boy, it is beautiful, and it is flowing, it is prosperity, and look at all the foliage. And, and Lot said, hmm, let me decide. Do I want to take the land over here, or the rocks and barrens, or I want to go? And Lot, and the Bible has a wonderful verse there in the 13th chapter. It says, Lot chose for himself. <laughs> I like that. True. He said, you know, I think I'll take the Jordan Valley. And he did. Then you read the progression, the gradualism of Lot, increasingly forgetting the altar. It says he pits his tent toward Sodom. Then he says he took and moved closer to Sodom, he and his family. And then finally, he moved into Sodom. And then you read in all probability, he became mayor of Sodom. He was in the gates. That's pretty good for an orphan boy who came in from a, another country and now he's settled and he sort of took some of the success of his God fearing uncle who was a friend of God, you remember, and now he is in Sodom and he's mayor of Sodom, and I don't know, 15, 20 years has gone by. I think we need to interview Lot. We all love Horatio Alger stories, Rags to Riches. Americans love that, but in other countries, let me tell you, the Horatio Alger story is not very popular. Oh no, you got to keep. Some people down and oppressed, and boy, they don't have a chance, but boy, we have Lot. Let's interview him. Man, here he is now in Sodom. Lot, I want to ask you a question as a reporter. How has moving to Sodom affected your life? He said, oh, I I can't even describe it. He said, I'm I'm mayor. He said, "I, I, I walk with... The top people in Sodom, he says, I can get along with people. I'm not like Father Abraham. You know, he's sort of old-fashioned and too religious. And I'm religious, but I'm not like, man, moving to Sodom has been the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, well, I've got another question for you. I can understand that, but uh, let me ask you, have you made a difference in Sodom? You know, you think differently from the inhabitants of Sodom. Have you made a difference?" He said, I hope so. They know I keep my word. They know I'm honest. They know my family is different from their family. We're not a part of the LGBTQ community that primarily made up the, the sexual life of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, but you know, they, you know, I, I don't judge them, they don't judge me, and they go their way. And you know, it, it's, it's working, out, working out fine, I think. Well, well Lot, I want to ask you, uh, How's this affected your family? How much money did you make? Well, he said, I don't want to brag, but you know, a couple of years, I'm going to be wealthier than Abraham, because I moved to Sodom. Man, I've doubled and tripled all my flock. I have land. Oh, yeah. By the way, Lot, how's this, how, what about your family? He said, my family's doing super. He said, you know, my wife, Ms. Lot, she's come here. She came from a rural background, and She's the salt of the earth, (laughs) but, you know, she fits right in with the upper class. She likes being first lady of Sodom, and, you know, she she has a lot of clothes and shopping, and man, she she just loves it. And uh, what about your daughters? Well, you know, they've already, they're young, but I've already got a marriage arranged with one of the leading uh, citizen's son there in Gomorrah and one of the leading citizens here in Sodom. Man, my daughters are thriving. Well, that's pretty good. Now let's look at the rest of the story. All of a sudden, we see God is beginning to, I think, send shots across the bow of Lot, you know, a warning shot. And now you have four kings that come down and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah take all the possessions, take Lot and his family and all his possessions, and they're going away. And Abraham, that old-fashioned religious fanatic there out in the boondocks the Bedouin moving around, he hears about that of Lot, and he takes all of his troops, all of his family. He goes down and defeats those four kings and takes back all those kings of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and takes Lot and his family and reinstates them back there in Sodom. You think maybe Lot would have said, you know, Abraham's life isn't all bad, and I'm sort of vulnerable here with all this prosperity and decadence and might makes right, and, but he didn't. So time goes by, and suddenly the Bible says the stench of immorality and decadence, exploitation of children, of people, of individual rights, goes all the way up to heaven, and God tells Abraham, my judging hand is going to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, in an interesting verse, asks God, Will the judge of all the earth do something that is unjust?" What's he saying? He's saying, will God wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah if there are some righteous people there? And here we see Abraham praying, dealing with God, trying to intercede on behalf of Lot, his family, and those decadent cities. He begins to pray, and he negotiates with God. He said, God, suppose, there are just 50 righteous in Sodom, just 50 people. Will you not spare them?" And God says, sure, sure, I, I would spare them if you can find 50 righteous. Looked around, they, they couldn't find 50. Abe said, well, suppose they're 45. Well, you know, you're not gonna just five short. Surely you would spare the city. And God says, no, there's not even 45 righteous people there. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? There are six supposes there. And finally, he said, if there are just 10 in Sodom, wouldn't you spare the city? Just 10. And then negotiation stops. The Bible's silent. What happened? There were not 10 righteous in those cities. The only one righteous there was Lot, and he was in his carnality. Deemed somehow to be righteous. And then those angels leave Abraham, and they go into Sodom. They're in the marketplace there, and Mayor Lot greets them and bows down in Oriental fashion. And they say they're going to spend a night there in the square, and Lot says, no, spend a night with me. And he insists that they come in his home, and when they get in his home and night falls, here you have all the lustful men. The Bible says it dramatically and tragically here, what took place. Chapter 19 of Genesis, and they called a Lot. They said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations, sexual relations with them. But Lot went out to them in the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters, said Lot, who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you do with them whatever you like. Only do not do nothing to these men, inasmuch they have come under my shelter for roof." Lot sells out his own daughters morally in order to keep the pride of hospitality that all the Hebrews were known for. Amazing, isn't it? And they said, the sodomites, and aside, furthermore, they said, this one has come to us as an alien. Well, he thought he was a part of them. Now, the whole lot, you're an alien. You're not one of us anyway. And then he says, and already you're acting like a judge. Now we'll treat you, Lot, worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break down the door. What are we saying here? We're saying live and let live. We live in a free moral country, a society. You can choose your life, make your own decisions. But we say your decisions are your decisions. And God does the judging. We see that here. If we judge, by the way, we are to judge, but when you and I judge, we're to be judged by the same standards. That's what the Bible teaches. Doesn't say judge not. He says judge not that you be not judged. If you and I judge, we're judged by those same standards. That's where you have to be careful with that judgment. And, and then he moves on, and they say, Lot, you're judging us. Why, you've accepted us. You've applauded our lifestyle, and now you're judging us because you won't let us literally rape these visitors who are here. What happened then? The angels reached out their hand, and all of those predators there were temporarily blinded. And they get Lot and his wife and his daughters, the two angels, and they begin to take them out of the city. One passage says, Lot lingered. Oh, he, he, he had a lot there, and they drug them out of the city until finally Lot's wife, Mrs. Lot, hesitated and Instruction was given, don't look back. By the way, archeologists have gone and looked at this particular period of time, and there is a rift there, and without question, there was a gigantic earthquake. Hail, fire, and damnation, and destruction there at this period of time, that has been verified. The hand of God bringing judgment on those people. They said, don't look back, and Mrs. Lott couldn't resist. She looked back and she said, oh, I don't want to leave Neiman Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> and she turned to a pillow of salt. Josephus the historian said that he went there and he saw that pillar later on in history, but that's neither here nor there. And Lot now takes his daughters and he drags them out. He says, let's go to Zor, sort of miniature like Sodom, and then finally ends up in a cave with his daughters way back in the back of the cave, and it's dark. And his daughters say, you know, there's no men here. We can't perpetuate our family. So they got Lot drunk on wine. And they had intimate relation with him. And the younger and older daughter conceived. One conceived a boy named Moab. Another conceived a boy named Ammon. And if you read on in biblical history, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they plagued and harassed the Israelites and godly people for generations and generations to come. And now here is old Lot in the back of a cave. Well, this is the rags-to-riches Horatio Alger Mayor, Lot. Now, at the end of his life, Lot, I want to interview you again and ask you, you know, the same questions. On the basis of your choice to go to Sodom, how did it uh, affect you, Lot? I lost. My life is destroyed, disgraced. Empty. I went to Sodom, but Sodom got into me. Well, Lot, did you make a difference? Did you make any difference in the moral climate of Sodom with your ethics? He said, I I, I made no difference. I wish I could. They end up thinking I was judging them when I was trying to protect people from their sexual exploitation of them, these angels, these visitors. He said, I didn't make any difference. Well, Lot, let me ask you, what about your family? Surely, tell me about your family. Well, I lost my wife. She was swallowed up in the judgment of God. My daughters, you see, I, I, I sold my daughters out. I offered them to all these sexual predators, and then they turned on me. Is it any wonder they turned on me and had incestuous relationships? I've lost all my family. Well, Lot, you know, You were the wealthiest man in that part of the country. You had land, and sheep, and flocks, and how did all that come out? How did that work for you? I know all this happened to you. What about your wealth? Let me comment on Lot's wealth. Last Christmas, I was right there close to this spot. Right there, I was there. You can look there and see where Sodom and Gomorrah was at the bottom of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea, Is aptly named because nothing lives in the Dead Sea because of the high salt content. And you can look all over that area, and you can't see a living thing, not a sprout, a green, or anything live. It is totally blighted, and at the bottom of the Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah were, it is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot on the face of the earth. What about all your stuff, Lot? Zip! I lost it all. Lot, tragically, is a modern man, a modern capitalist. I've been pastor of Second Family for 40 years. I've seen young couples come in Boy, they had a gleam in their eye. They went to church, their kids went to Bible study. Man, they loved God, they were stewards of their possession. They were here, they were praying. But you know, a bad thing happened. They became, in some degree, successful. Ladies and gentlemen, there are a 100 people that can handle failure before you find one person that can godly handle success. And various degrees of success, you know, you know the kids, they had all kind of activities on Sunday, and they didn't, they weren't as faithful they used to be, and, and now they were able to go and travel and go to the ball games and go to all the activities and get caught up in everything around Metropolitan, Houston, and boy, we just, and all of a sudden, they came every Sunday, well, once a week and periodically, and they just sort of gradually moved away, and suddenly, they take up residence in their own Sodom, and their kids go off to school, and they pledge a sorority and a fraternity, or they go in the military, and they're caught up in a godless lifestyle. Mom and dad say, oh, dear Lord, what happened to our kids? I was not very lucky. Raising godly kids has nothing to do with luck, ladies and gentlemen. It's intentionality with mom and dad. Otherwise, we have a lot of lots running around our area. That tragic story of Lot has been repeated hundreds of times, and I've witnessed it. I can tell you it genuinely breaks my heart. I spent all week trying to figure out what to say at the end of this Horatio Alger story. A lot. All I can say is what we prayed at the beginning. You want forgiveness, second chance? You have to repent. Lord, forgive me for this, this negligence thing. That, oh, no, 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 do doesn't work. We don't go to him asking for forgiveness. We go there and repent. We turn around and turn away from those mistakes and choices we have made, and when we turn away and repent, then Christ comes with grace and forgiveness. There is no forgiveness about repentance. Go and sin no more. There's no cheap grace. So that's where we begin. My life, your life, Lord, I repent. Let me start right now as a teenager, a boy, a girl, a a parent and say, you know, I'd love to do it again. I'd love to do it again in many areas, but let's start right now being God-fearing folks and being those who give the highest priority to worship. Have an altar in your house, you see, Sodom and Gomorrah isn't out somewhere. Sodom and Gomorrah has come into your house, into my house. Their ways the prince of the power of the air comes right in your house. Sodom is in your house, in my house. We better have an altar in our house, as well as an altar in worship in church every Lord's day. You see. We have an altar in our house, and we go to that altar. We spend time at that altar, and we go to the Lord's house on Sunday, all of a sudden, our kids, as well as our wives, our husbands, they'll say, you know, something has happened in this life. This life has come alive for God and for Christ. There's a fresh new breezes blowing that are cleansing and life-giving. So. America, wake up, Texas, wake up, my house, your house, wake up, build an altar, visit that altar every single day.
0: You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Dr. Young, today's sermon reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler whose love of his possessions kept him from truly following Jesus and inheriting eternal life. How can we avoid that same mistake today?
1: Well, number one, the rich young ruler lived a very highly moral life. Uh, You see, he said, I've kept all the commandments and he named the commandments that deal in human relationships. He didn't name the first commandments, the one that deals with our relationship with God. And it's easy for us to block our relationship with the Lord and to hold back and not surrender all. Every morning I get up, i hit my knees along with my wife. Lisa on the bed. Every night we hit our knees right by the bed and we pray one little prayer among other prayers that we utter. Lord, I surrender to you. That's where you begin. Surrender to him. That's what the rich young ruler couldn't do. But he went to the right person at the right time with the right attitude and he had the right life, the rich young ruler. But yet he wouldn't surrender that which kept him from walking with Jesus. It was his wealth. Does it mean we have to throw away all of our means in order to walk with Jesus? Yes, if your wealth or your position is the center of your life, if it's idolatrous in your life. That was the rich young ruler's idol. Therefore, Jesus knew he could not follow him and still have wealth and position as his idol. What's your idol? Ask the Lord if there's anything you're putting ahead of him and then he'll deal with that, and then you'll be able, as a rich young ruler was unable to, walk with Jesus.
0: Thanks, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.